Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. This week, Elon Musk. Is he playing four-dimensional chess, or is he being rolled by the woke over his Twitter acquisition? The U.S. government is violating the First Amendment by coordinating with big tech and big social media to suppress your speech as a citizen, because the government is, in fact, your abusive spouse and my abusive spouse. And the Branch Covidians are getting scared as they sense the tide is turning against them. So they're trying to manipulate us into having a conversation about forgiveness before it gets too hot in the room. Well, I can tell you this, it's not going to happen. So let's start with Elon Musk. Strange situation this week. Um, I'm not sure how hard to go on him because I have a feeling that he's playing poker in some ways. He's not disclosing all of his moves, and that's exactly what he should be doing uh, because he has a lot of enemies out there who don't want to see him succeed. On the other hand, he appears to be flip-flopping, and he appears to be, or, or he's affecting to be, incredibly naive about the character of the people on the hard left that he's working and dealing with. Um, you know, so it, it's this weird thing. He, he appointed... Um, a number of people, including Twitter employees who have been documented on Twitter, calling for the banning of Trump, calling people on the right, all sorts of names, um, calling for speech to be suppressed. He's appointed some of these very people responsible for the censorship that has made Twitter as awful as it is to his. He's kept it as employees and put them on his moderation council. I, I got to say, I'm having a hard time understanding that. And he acts surprised when these people turn on him. Maybe he is surprised. Maybe he's affecting surprise. Maybe he's a master at this. But it sure does look strange. So let's get into it. Um, most of this comes from reporting in the Epic Times. So apparently this past week, Elon Musk had a meeting with the NAACP, the Anti-Defamation League, the League of United Latin American Citizens, Color of Change, Free Press, the Bush Center, and the Asian American Foundation. A um, couple of these are not familiar to me, but most of them, I think, are hard left organizations. You'll correct me, of course, if I'm wrong in the comments, and I'll say thank you. Quote, Twitter's Content Moderation Council will include representatives with widely divergent views, which will certainly include the civil rights community and groups who face hate-fueled violence, Elon Musk wrote on Twitter on November 2nd. So why was this so important? Why were these groups the first groups that you felt it necessary to open the door to and roll, roll out the welcome map for? Were they really, are they really actually representing the people who've been most mistreated by society and most mistreated on Twitter? Is that really so? Or did they just claim that? Where were the libertarian or conservative groups? I mean, maybe the Bush Center is one of those, but it looked a little imbalanced to me. And hate-fueled violence like what, Elon? And I'm asking specifically, anybody who wants to talk about hate-fueled violence, be specific. Say it in detail, in plain, small words. Violence is, you, you have to define it now because we know that words are violence, but that violence isn't violence. So you need to get specific. Might an example of that be the canvasser, the volunteer for the Marco Rubio campaign, who was beaten to a bloody pulp, left in critical condition, in need of surgery with a fractured skull, beaten to a pulp by leftists who said to him, Republicans weren't welcome in their county. How about the cities and government buildings that Black Lives Matter burned during the riots of 2020? That kind of hate-fueled violence? Will that have a seat at the table? We don't know. What right-wing hate-fueled violence might we be talking about? Sure, it happens. It happens on the left, happens on the right. But today, no, no. It's not equal. It's not both sides. Political violence is primarily coming from the left. Everyone knows it, even the people who claim that it's coming from the right. Quote, Hours ahead of Musk's Twitter acquisition, the world's richest person sent a letter to advertisers that he won't allow the platform to become a, quote, free-for-all hellscape. 
Well, look how people turned on you, Elon. Quote, just days ago, this is an actual quote from a person. Just days ago, Elon Musk promised Twitter advertisers that this site would not become an anything-goes hellscape. We've got news for you. It already is. Free Press co-CEO Jessica Gonzalez wrote on Twitter, claiming that Musk's proposed counsel won't be good enough for her group's demands. Well, la-di-da, aren't you fancy? Let me let you in, uh, let you in on something else, because I work in the nonprofit world. Thank God for only about two months more. Anytime you've got an organization with a co-CEO, you've got an organization that is not running well and that has got somebody who's manipulative and narcissistic, whose ego needs to be satisfied and who wants to bifurcate power and interrupt the hierarchy chain. Co-CEO, stop it. I've seen these people before. I've worked with them or people who want to run their organizations on what they call the consensus model, like the Quakers. You know what the consensus model is? It's the model picked by covert narcissists who pretend to be the most giving and caring people on the face of the planet who want to make sure that everyone's voice is as valued as everyone else. Don't believe them. They're not nice people, no matter how nice their affect might be. They're power mongers. That's what that is. Or how about this? Quote, <clears throat> when the world's richest man and owner of this very site himself traffics in conspiracy theories days after claiming to advertisers that he's going to be a responsible leader, all I can say is I'm not overreacting by expressing my concerns. Actions always speak louder than words, wrote Yale Eisenstadt, vice president of the Anti-Defamation League, which later met with Musk. The Anti-Defamation League. Like the ACLU, the ADL claims to be a nonpartisan organization, nonpolitical organization. Not true. They're both hard left. I'm going to show you a couple of actual tweets from Elon Musk. First one here. Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation, and we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> Who the hell did you think you'd invited into your house? <laughs> I mean... You may be a lot of things, Mr. Musk, but dumb you are not. Explain this to me. Even though nothing's changed in moderation. Yeah. Not what we were hoping for, was it? You don't appease bullies, ever. Appeasing bullies only means you get punched again and again. Does he really not understand this? Or is he playing poker. Next tweet. <sighs> Again, to be crystal clear, Twitter's strong commitment to content moderation remains absolutely unchanged. In fact, we have actually seen hateful speech at times this week decline below our prior norms, contrary to what you may read in the press. What kind of content moderation? What kind of hateful speech? What does that mean? Be specific. What does hateful speech mean? Even Elon Musk himself will not be specific. This is all code words for things the left doesn't like. I, I'm not saying that he himself believes that, but he's participating in this by using their covert language. My prediction, nothing at all is going to change at Twitter, really. Nothing. Woke is a universal philosophical solvent. It dissolves everything. Everything, every ideology, every community, every relationship, and every philosophy that it comes into contact with. Universal solvent. You can't even let a teaspoon of woke into the container because it will burn a hole through the glass onto the floor. That's how it works. Because woke is cluster B. This is cluster B. There's no such thing as negotiating with and coming to detente with Cluster B. 
<sighs> Let's move on to more Cluster B. <laughs> Very interesting guy we're going to talk about. His name is Sam Vaknin. Now, Sam himself has been diagnosed several times with narcissistic personality disorder and or psychopathy. And he admits this. So he's an interesting figure. He writes extensively and does extensive videos on narcissism and on Cluster B. And I have a hard time knowing how much to trust what he says because he is obviously a narcissist, but he's also quite obviously brilliant. And whether or not he's being honest in, in what he presents or, or whether or not he's trying to manipulate, and he probably is, I have to say that the majority of what I've read from him makes sense and clicks with ideas that I've come to on my own. For example, he sees a lot more crossover and a lot more cross-contamination between the alleged four discrete disorders, borderline, histrionic, narcissistic, and antisocial personality disorders. He's one of the people who talks most about the fact that, uh, to his mind, uh, a much greater number of, of, of women with borderline personality disorder than anyone would ever suspect actually have secondary psychopathic traits as well. Um, so I, I, I think he's very interesting, um, even if he's, he's hard to pin down. So at any rate, I'm going to show you a couple of clips here. Listen to a couple of clips. He's asked on a podcast about cancel culture and victimhood. And let's roll that first clip, please, Kevin. So my view is the view of uh, clinical psychology. In the past few years, we have begun to study victimhood movements and the psychology of victimhood movements. So we have, for example, studies by Gabay, G-A-B-A-Y, and allies, four, four massives conducted mainly in Israel. We have studies in British Columbia and so forth, and Alzheimer's for you. What we're beginning to find is that certain people are prone to adopt victimhood as an identity. Their victimhood is their identity. Their victimhood endows their life with meaning, makes sense of the world. So it's an organizing principle. They would seek to be victims, even in situations where they would not have been victimized otherwise. When they are not victimized, they push you to victimize them. This is called projective identification. You know I've talked about projective identification before, and I'm really glad this, this clip was available because I think that makes it really clear what it is. They will push you to victimize them because they want to be victims. My therapist described it this way. He said to me, some people fall in love with their pain. And that sounds a little odd until you think about it, but it's true. People who have experienced themselves as victims, and, and I, I, would go, I would go ahead and say that, oh God, it's hard to give percentages. A great number of these people who make themselves up as victims were actually victimized in their childhood. There's a reason that they're this mentally distorted. It's usually abuse. They probably were victimized by their parents. Um, I was one of these people. Believe it or not, having an identity as a victim, especially if you don't have a strong identity other than that, can be extremely satisfying to the ego. It can be very validating. If you've been genuinely traumatized in the past, it's a very easy habit to fall into because society encourages it. The role that society offers for people who've been through abuse is to, capital, be a victim. You get social points for this. You get currency. You get stroked. You get soothed, right? There is, there's a paycheck that comes with this. Let's roll the next one, please, Kevin. You can see these people online, for example, in the empaths movement and other nonsensical labels where these people are actually very narcissistic, very grandiose, extremely aggressive, lacking in them of any kind, and yet they claim that they have been victimized all their lives because they are super empathic and they are sensitive and so forth, and they are proud of their victimhood. They compete with each other. My abuser was much worse than your abuser. No, my abuse was unprecedented. I understand that you were abused. I'm sorry for you, but my abuse was much... It's identity politics becomes identity politics. A separate set of studies in Canada and elsewhere has shown that very fast, very soon, within usually two to three years maximum, victimhood movements such as Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and so on, get hijacked by narcissists and psychopaths. So the infiltration of narcissists and psychopaths is universal in all these victimhood movements, and they become the public face of the movement. Yep. Sounds exactly what I've said, like what I've said. Because it's true. 
<laughs> so you hear him talking about the narcissists and psychopaths who hijack these movements, and he's right. But I would add, don't forget the borderlines and histrionics because they are the main foot soldiers who march for the narcissists and psychopaths, the unstable, the, uh, the, the, the ones with exaggerated affect and emotional lability. Borderlines are strongly attracted both sexually and romantically and, and, and also in other ways, strongly attracted to narcissists and psychopaths. They seem, the narcs and the psychos seem to the borderlines to have a strong, fixed, and stable identity. That's an illusion, but that is how they appear to the borderlines and how they appear to many of us. That's how we get fooled by them. Um, that, that apparent stability and strength of, of identity is something that attracts borderlines because they have very little sense of identity of their own. But the other part that attracts them, I think, is that the narcissists are going to abuse the borderlines, and that's often all these people know, and a part of them wants it and feels really comfortable with it. You know? If they get abused, they can be a victim again, and that's all they know how to do. Um, this next one is interesting. He's going to talk about what's called the Cartman drama triangle. Victim of movements are one of the most threatening and pernicious developments. There, there is a sociologist by the name of Campbell, and he said that we have transitioned from the age of dignity to the age of victimhood. It's very dangerous because if you are a perennial victim, if this is your identity, if you are determined by your victim, you would tend to develop attendant behaviors. For example, you would tend to feel entitled to special treatment. And if the, you don't get this special treatment, you will become aggressive. And this is the irony. This was first described by Kaufman. There's a guy called Kaufman, and he described what he called the drama triangle. And he said abusers, the drama triangle includes abuser, victim, and rescuer, or savior. But he said these roles are not fixed. When the victim is not gratified by the rescuer, she becomes an abuser. Yeah, keep that in mind, the Cartman drama triangle, because I am i don't know when, but I'm going to do a show that devotes at least um, one segment, possibly half the show to it. Um, it's, it's this triangle of victim, persecutor, and savior. And Sam is pointing out that people pay, play musical chairs with this. They don't all stay on the same points of the triangle. It's a literal psychodrama. That's what psychodrama means. And people play parts and they act as understudies for each other in each of those roles, ready to step in as soon as time is called and everybody has to move over one iteration. Um, one more from Sam here. And when the abuser witnesses the behavior of the rescuer, he tries to be the rescuer. So everyone cycles. What I'm trying to say is that the potential for aggression and even violence in victimhood movements is much larger than in the general population. And even I would go as far as saying that it's equal to psychopathic movements. For example, the Nazi movement. Equal. Of course, the Nazism was a victimhood movement. Nazis presented themselves as victims of the Versailles Agreement, of the World Order, Germany was discriminated against, and, so and look what, where it led. Similarly, communism was a victim of war. The proletariat was exploited by the landowners and by the industrialists and so on. We need to redress grievances. Anything that is grievance-based leads to violence and death. End of story. All death cults started as victimhood movements. ISIS is no exception. So it's dangerous. So he talks about how the risk of aggression and violence is much higher in these movements than it is among the general public. A very important point. It's a point I've been trying to get across. Um, in the first episode of the show, I believe is the first episode, Mommy Issues. And if you're new to this show, by the way, um, it, it would help you. I think you'd, you'd actually appreciate it if you go back and listen to episodes one and two, the very first ones. First one's called Mommy Issues. The second one is called Don't Diagnose. And they really frame the entire working thesis of this show. Um, but I said that the reason that I bang on about Cluster B as much as I do is because, quote, these people are dangerous. That's hard sometimes for those who are not familiar with Cluster B or familiar with seeing apparently victimized people as anything other than victims. It's hard for them to hear that. Um, but nevertheless, it is true. And as, as Sam Vaknin said, um, Nazism was a victimhood movement. Communism was and is a victimhood movement. It's not out of bounds to draw parallels to these things. 
You know, we need to get out of this. Uh, you know, we need to stop saying Godwin's law, Godwin's law. Anytime you bring up the Nazis, you lose. No, that isn't true. That isn't true. We are allowed to talk about this and they are parallel. And drawing that parallel does not mean that any one of us is saying and everything that's happening today is literally the exact moral equivalent of shoving Jews into ovens at Auschwitz. OK, let's get over that. Move along. Now, do you notice that all of these victimhood movements are coming from the left? Tell me again how communism and Nazism were right wing. We have a real problem in this in this country understanding that there is such a thing as a left wing authoritarian. We think that it is by definition right wing. And I think the researcher Robert Altmaier, who wrote the famous paper, The Authoritarians, is responsible for the lion's share of this misperception. Um, feeling victimized and wanting other people to do more for you than you are entitled to is not a right wing or conservative character trait. It's a left wing character trait. My mother was a Democrat a leftist, a feminist, an anti-nuclear protester in the 1980s. Are you getting the picture yet? <laughs> and she was an absolute harridan about how awful the government was to people on the welfare system, how stingy the government was to welfare recipients, how much they hated her and hated single mothers and deliberately victimized them. <laughs> Does that sound right wing to you? See you after the break. There's a new perk for disaffected subscribers, and it's a good one. Patreon and Subscribestar donors, as well as PayPal donors, now have instant access to our backstage Discord server. Join multiple topic-based chat rooms and 24-7 open voice chat, and even virtual events on a main stage for hosted conversations and backstage podcast recording sessions. It's not Twitter, and you don't have to pretend Bruce Jenner's vagina is real. Sign up today. that the government has been telling big social media what to do. And now we have the evidence. I'm going to read to you from an article done by The Intercept. This is the online, how would you call it, a newspaper journalistic outlet that was founded by Glenn Greenwald, but then Glenn Greenwald quit uh, over the direction that The Intercept was taking. They did really good work on this one. And the question on my mind is, what does the government have as leverage over big tech and big social media? Why? Why is big tech cooperating the way they're cooperating? And I can think of a couple possibilities. I don't know what the answer is. Um, is it the threat of worse regulation if big tech does not comply with them? Is it something else? Is it that big tech generally is actually sympathetic to the government and wishes to have this partnership with them? I'm not sure. But there's something going on here. Because I don't think we've ever seen media. I mean, I'm saying big tech, but what I mean is big social media. Okay, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these guys. I don't think I've ever seen media of any sort this co-opted by government or this voluntarily cooperating with government. This is this is something new. Not that it hasn't happened before. It has happened before. But to this degree, this synchronicity, I don't think we've seen that before. And I think it's kind of remarkable. From The Intercept, quote, the Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous, an investigation by The Intercept has found. Years of internal Department of Homeland Security memos, emails, and documents obtained via leaks and an ongoing lawsuit, as well as public documents, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. Next one. Though the Department of Homeland Security shuddered 
its controversial Disinformation Governance Board, a strategic document reveals the underlying work is ongoing. DHS plans to target inaccurate information on, quote, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. The Department of Homeland Security plans to target inaccurate information. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Quote, Facebook created a special portal for DHS and government partners to report disinformation directly. That is remarkable. Remarkable. They actually, I, I don't have the picture for you, but there's a screen. It's a portal. You know, you log in as a government agent and you report directly to Facebook when you see somebody doing a bad, doing a misinformation, which, of course, means anything the government does not want you to be able to say. <laughs> Next quote. And this is actually a quote. Platforms have to get comfortable with government. It's really interesting how hesitant they remain, end quote, said Microsoft executive Matt Masterson, a former DHS official, texted to Jen Easterly, a DHS director, in February. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? The revolving door of private industry and government. <laughs> around and around and around it goes. You know, I have worked with government agencies in my day job that have revolving door policies. They are ostensibly, and on paper, supposed to not hire people from industry right away. There's supposed to be a cooling off period. I don't know how this is supposed to change anything. And I can tell you from experience that it doesn't change anything. Some of the government officials I've talked with who've been subject to the revolving door policy, they came from industry and then went here or went from one agency to another, they quite openly talk about how they have to give the appearance of complying with the policy. I mean, because everybody knows, everybody knows that it doesn't matter that you have a policy on paper. When you get people in from an industry or from another agency of government, they are going to bring that point of view with them. There's no way to stop that from happening. Next quote from the Intercepts article. The work, much of which remains unknown to the American public, came into clearest view earlier this year when DHS announced a new disinformation governance board. A panel designed to police disinformation, false information spread unintentionally, disinformation, false information spread intentionally, and malinformation, Factual information shared typically out of context with harmful intent that allegedly threatens U.S. interests. Ooh, ooh, they are getting detailed, aren't they? Do you remember Nina Jankowitz? Let's put her on the screen here. Remember her? Scary Poppins? Yeah. She actually did a version of, what was it, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or something else like that? Something from Mary Poppins about disinformation. And then everybody went nuts because, I mean, it was ridiculous and they got rid of the governance board. But as many people correctly predicted, they didn't get rid of this project at all, did they? Quote, in a March meeting, Laura Demlo, an FBI official, warned that the threat of subversive information on social media could undermine support for the U.S. government. Demlo, according to notes of a discussion attended by senior executives from Twitter and J.P. Morgan Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase is a bank, if you don't know that, stressed that, quote, we need a media infrastructure that is held accountable. Held accountable. I love that word. Quote, there is also a formalized process for government officials to directly flag content on Facebook or Instagram and request that it be throttled or suppressed through a special Facebook portal that requires a government or law enforcement email to use. At the time of writing the 
content request system at Facebook.com is still live. Department of Homeland Security and Meta, the parent company of Facebook, did not respond to a request for comment. The FBI declined to comment naturally. For those of you who don't know, this activity by the government is blatantly unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds. The First Amendment constrains the government, the government, not you, the citizen. The First Amendment constrains the government from suppressing your speech, not the reverse. Okay? You, the citizen, are not constrained by the First Amendment. You are protected by it. Do you see how they have pulled a reversal? Do you see it? Narcissistic reversal. <laughs> the government, under the First Amendment, may not coerce private citizens or companies in order to throttle speech. This is not a gray area. It's not an issue in controversy. It's not Josh Slocum's opinion. It's a fact. And it's a fact that everyone at this level of government knew openly just a few years ago. If you as a citizen don't know that, that means that your civics education was subpar and you need to do some remedial reading. That's true of most of us. Most of us Americans have a subpar civics education. Remedy that, please. This is another illustration to me of why culture is more important than the written law. Culture is more important than politics. We have a constitution. We have laws. But they are only words that are in written documents. When no one remembers what what these laws are supposed to do, we don't actually have the rights that these laws describe. Literally, if we don't enact the concepts that are written down in our Constitution and our laws, we don't have those constitutional protections. Only culture can do this. Only a citizenry that actually understands the founding principles of this country and how they protect individual citizens and only a country where citizens care about this can, can preserve this. Okay? We don't have a functional First Amendment right now. We have it in some instances, but we don't have a complete First Amendment. It's being chipped away at. And, and why, why is Biden's government so confident in doing this? And they are. I mean, they're brazen, right? I've never seen a government that would be this confident to blatantly violate the First Amendment before. Why? Because you and I, collectively, on average, as citizens, we won't stop them. We're not stopping them. Americans don't understand the Constitution. They don't understand their rights. And frankly, way too many Americans are hostile to the idea of free speech, actively hostile. And who are, who are those Americans? It's not both sides. No, it's not. It's the left. The left that has banged on and caterwauled for decades about free speech. You know, people say the left used to care about this. I don't think so. I think the left used to say they cared about it. I'm not sure they ever did. Because if the left could be so thoroughly reversed in its philosophical positions over the past four or five years? Uh-uh, no. The rot was there to begin with. <laughs> Here's a little grab bag. Got some fun for you. Let's look at queer art. <laughs> well, what is queer art, you say? Well, here's a picture. This was submitted by um, a listener and audience member, Ryan, uh, who's also a member of our Discord which you get access to if you give us at least $5 a month. Cha-ching! He sent this in. It's a picture of what, oh, what's the, what's the right term for it? I used to do this shit in college. Um, a multimedia artistic piece. It's a photograph in a frame that appears to be altered, and it shows a naked body with a few bars across the front, of the nipple area and the, the genitary region. Yeah, I just made that up. <laughs> Got it from Shelby. Um, very androgynous. It's creepy. It's cold. It, 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 it looks like a Borg regeneration chamber. Like, oh, look, it's seven of nine personalities. 
<laughs> and what's worse, read the description, the caption, if you will, that accompanies the word. I will read it for you. But for that, I need borderline glasses. And not just because I can't read this and I can't read it, but because I really need to be in the mood. The piece is called Offshoots of Camp by Levine Gammy. Inkjet print, wood, acrylic paint. Seats Multimedia. Levine Gammy is an interdisciplinary artist living and working on the traditional and unceded territory of the Songhees, Eskimo, and WSNF people. Capital W, capital S, capital A, capital N, capital E, capital C. I have no idea what that means, which means it means nothing. She is currently completing a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Arts at UVic. I assume this is University of Victoria in Canada. Offshoots of Camp is simultaneously addressing the common definition of the word camp, as well as Susan Sontag's, they misspelled Sontag, Susan Sontag's essay from 1964 titled Notes on Camp, which describes camp as the extravagant, the overly exaggerated, and the extra. She didn't call it the extra. A definition rooted in queer culture, queer is capitalized. The physical features and temporality of the exhibited work references the tangible labors of camping as well as the frivolous. Gammy is often considering ecology, color, the philosophy of freedom, and black gathering in her work. No, I don't know what black gathering means. Neither does she. She doesn't know what anything means. This is the exact same crap that I was doing and that other people in my fine art photography program were doing at Sarah Lawrence College in the mid-1990s. I did shit like this. It wasn't this creepy, but it was this pretentious because I was at Sarah Lawrence and... We deconstructed everything and, and we post-colonialed everything, you know? We talked about, you know, the interstices of things and stuff that lives in margins and not margins. <laughs> this is nothing new. You know, I was thinking when I was getting this ready, and I didn't do it because, frankly, I'm afraid of looking at it, but maybe I'll do a treat. I have saved some of my old Sarah Lawrence papers. Maybe I'll read one on a show coming up soon. Maybe I'll get that for you for Christmas. That's not a promise. <laughs> okay. Next in the grab bag, Stephen King tweets. So here's Stephen King reacting to Elon Musk on Twitter. Elon Musk would like to charge everybody $8 a month to get their uh, verified blue check on Twitter. And that verification is supposed to be simply verification that you are the person you say you are. But it has become something that, that money cannot buy. Only the exalted, the canonized, the left, can achieve verification. Normal people, your application will sit there and languish forever. They're just not going to give it to you. So Stephen King says, $20 a month to keep my blue check? Fuck that. They should pay me. If that gets instituted, I'm gone like Enron. <laughs> and Elon Musk says back, oh, and I like this from Elon, but I'm not shilling we need to pay the bills somehow. Twitter cannot rely entirely on advertisers. How about eight bucks? Because he first floated $20. <laughs> you know what? Yes, you will pay it, King. You absolutely will pay that $20 or that $8. You'd pay $40. You'd pay double, triple, or more. You will pay whatever it takes. Why? Because your ego needs your blue check. You're Twitter royalty, aren't you? You'll pay it. <laughs> then we get Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. LMAO at a billionaire earnestly trying to sell people on the idea that, quote, free speech is actually a $8 a month <laughs> subscription plan. Musk comes back. 
your feedback is appreciated. Now pay $8. <laughs> if it had been me, I would have appended the word bitch. <laughs> LMAO. I, did you see the clip? I don't have it for you. But did you see the three-minute video she put out from her apartment where she's sitting there complaining about everything while she's eating chicken fingers with her manicured nails and talking in that that um, that ensmalent little girl voice that she uses and moving around and making really big eyes at the camera and doing things like this? <laughs> you know... Why isn't she embarrassed? This is a woman in her 30s. She's in, she's in the federal government. She's a federal elected official. You know, and, and she's just so vulgar. And I'm vulgar, too. I'm vulgar and blunt, and I cuss on the show all the time. But you know what? I'm not an elected representative. I never will be because I refuse to keep my mouth shut, and I refuse to censor myself. But that office requires that. It does. I admire people who can work in those conditions. I'm not willing to do so. But I'd be embarrassed to talk that way if, if I were in my capacity as an elected official. Doesn't face her absolutely at all. And why should it? She's applauded for it. Not embarrassed, applauded. Okay, we're coming up on a break here, but I want to really plug our Discord. I'm bringing you content that is coming from your fellow audience members, the memes, some of the news stories. We're, the conversation's really heating up. We've got about 200 people in there now and more are coming in every, every day. All you have to do is support us financially and we don't ask that much. $5 minimum. Of course, we'd love to have more. Christmas is coming up, isn't it? Ding! <laughs> Two ways to do it. Actually, three. Patreon.com slash disaffected. Subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Or one-off donations through PayPal sent to us at disaffected.fm. See you after the break. There's a new perk for disaffected subscribers, and it's a good one. Patreon and Subscribestar donors, as well as PayPal donors, now have instant access to our backstage Discord server. Join multiple topic-based chat rooms and 24-7 open voice chat, and even virtual events on a main stage for hosted conversations and backstage podcast recording sessions. It's not Twitter, and you don't have to pretend Bruce Jenner's vagina is real. Sign up today. Welcome back. Welcome back from a commercial and directly into another. Do you need somebody to talk to? Got a cluster B spouse? Cluster B mom? Cluster B dad? Or are you trying to figure out a direction in life? You're trying to figure out if you're going to write your own book, do your own podcast? Do you want to talk to a sane person for values of sane that include somebody named Joshua Slocum? I am offering coaching sessions. JoshuaSlocum.net. While my focus is, of course, my, my specialty, if you will, as I build this up, is talking to people about toxic and abusive dynamics, both interpersonal relationships, but also work situations and things like that. Um, I've, I've had clients so far who've come with a variety of different topics. Some of them just want to actually talk to somebody who understands what's going on, can validate them. And, and, and I'm sorry I'm using that term, but there is a, there is a place for validation. Um, so we can talk about a variety of things. If this sounds like something that's interesting to you, uh, my times and dates that I'm available are on there. Again, go to joshuaslocum.net, and thank you very much. In this final segment, I'm going to talk about the attempt that people among the woke and the branch COVIDians are making in order to excuse themselves and duck out of responsibility for anything they did as they feel the tide is turning. We're going to look at an article in The Atlantic from Emily Oster, or excuse me, Professor Emily Oster. And it's going to illustrate how a neurotic, controlling, and yes, abusive person like Emily Oster rewrites the narrative to excuse herself out of any of her actions. She's putting on social camouflage to make herself blend in with everyone else by claiming falsely that all 
other reasonable people did the same ridiculous things that she did during COVID. And that they weren't actually ridiculous because we didn't know. So let me introduce you to Professor Emily Oster, Prof Emily, at Prof Emily Oster. <laughs> Head tilt smile. Mommy. You should be able to pick up on the symbology by now if you've been paying attention. Here's the headline of the article. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Let's focus on the future and fix the problems we still need to solve. <laughs> no, honey, let's not. But let's give you let's give you a little bit of a platform to explain yourself and make your plea. Quote. Oh, oh, yeah, the first quote here. <laughs> all of these um, these media outlets, um, they find all sorts of ways to virtue signal. So when you see a picture now, if they illustrate their story online with a picture, you get the alt text that's that's apparently there to help the visually disabled. But it's really just them showing off that they're helping the visually disabled. So <laughs> the, the caption for this is, quote, Close-up picture of a painting in which a woman and a man are both holding the same olive branch. <laughs> the woman wears a medical mask. Yes, because she's neurotic. This is their helpful text for the visually impaired. Quote, here's Emily Oster. In April 2020, with nothing else to do, my family took an enormous number of hikes. We all wore cloth masks that I made myself. We had a family hand signal, which the person in front would use if someone was approaching on the trail and we needed to put on our masks. Once, when another child got too close, my then four-year-old son, on a bridge, he yelled at her, and this is in all caps, audience, social distancing. <laughs> so we know a couple of things already from this. A, Emily is a neurotic, at the very least. B, Emily likes to control other people, whether it's necessary or not. C, Emily has either taught her four-year-old to fear other people and censure them for non-existent dangers, breaking all rules of etiquette, and or Emily lies about her son because she believes this makes her good, look like a good mommy. Could be a combination of these things. A family hand signal if somebody's approaching you on an outdoor trail. A hand signal. You know why it's a hand signal, right? Because if anybody yells out loud, it spreads COVID. Oh, my God. Quote. These precautions were totally misguided. In April 2020, no one got the coronavirus from passing someone else hiking. Outdoor transmission was vanishingly rare. Our cloth masks made out of old bandanas wouldn't have done anything anyway. But the thing is, we didn't know. Yes, we did know. I knew. Millions of people knew. How did we know? We're not epidemiologists. We're not doctors. So how did we know? We knew from common sense. From a basic understanding of the kinds of things that are taught on Sesame Street or in third grade science class, like bigger and smaller, bigger, smaller, near, far. We could see, for example, we could see that the coronavirus, the particle itself, was physically smaller than the openings between the weave and the cloth masks. Bigger, smaller, smaller thing, go through bigger hole. <laughs> it's this retarded, okay? We knew it, and you knew it too, Emily. This is not the end of her lying. She's laying the groundwork here for her amnesty. Quote, some of these choices turned out to be better than others. To take an example close to my own work, there is an emerging, if not universal, consensus that schools in the U.S. were closed for too long. The health risks of in-school spread were relatively low, whereas the cost to students' well-being and educational progress were high. Well, we knew that then, Emily. We knew that stopping kids from learning 
would hurt them. Even the American Academy of Pediatrics knew that children needed to see facial expressions and read lips in order to acquire language in early childhood. How do we know that the American Academy of Pediatrics knew this then? Well, because the AAP wiped its own research and its own articles on that very topic from their website during COVID. I watched them do it in real time. I commented on the show when they did it. They knew. <laughs> they did it so that they could say, like Emily would say, we didn't know. We didn't. Yeah, yeah, dad. Quote, but in spring and summer 2020, we only had glimmers of information. Reasonable people, people who cared about children and teachers, advocated on both sides of the reopening debate. Emily is lying. We had more than glimmers of information. We knew in the first half of 2020, for example, that COVID posed absolutely zero risk to children. We know it today and we knew it then. Even the medical authorities back then in 2020 said this. They said it. That's how we knew. But we also, we also knew from, you know, having lived on Earth and knowing respiratory viruses like flu that come and go, who do they generally target? Generally the elderly. Yeah, there have been outbreaks <coughs> of certain contagious viruses and certain diseases that do preferentially target children. Absolutely true. We've seen that in the past. But generally, no. So we knew. We knew that COVID was no danger to kids. The medical authorities stopped saying this fairly quickly, and they did so because powerful teachers unions like the one run by that narcissistic manipulator, Randy Weingarten, they made it clear that children were to be sacrificed to service the neuroses of adults and old people. Mm-hmm. Reasonable people didn't come down on both sides of this, Emily. People who never joined the cult, your cult, Branch Covidianism, these were the reasonable people. Your set was never reasonable. By definition, you were the unreasonable side. You were the fearful side. You were the manipulative, neurotic, and dishonest side. There isn't parody. Emily would like there to be parody because she's a little bit afraid, but there isn't parody. Emily, you're not like everyone else. You're a liar and you're a manipulator. Everyone else isn't a liar and a manipulator. Lots of people are, but not everyone. Here she is setting it up more so that she appears to be reasonable. She's doing this so that your anger and your desire to see the manipulators called out and actually appropriately held accountable, that will seem unreasonable. You will sound unreasonable. She's positioning people like you and me to be the ones who are called abusive and out of line. Quote, obviously some people intended to mislead and made wildly irresponsible claims. Remember when the public health community had to spend a lot of time and resources urging Americans not to inject themselves with bleach? That was bad. Misinformation was and remains a huge problem, but most errors were made by people who were working in earnest for the good of society. That is another lie. Bullshit. No one, no one, or only a handful of people would have injected themselves with bleach. This is her trying to say, Donald Trump almost killed people by telling them to inject bleach, which of course he never said. No, Emily, we didn't have to urge Americans not to inject bleach. That was a deliberate choice by the CDC and the media to make up a fake story to characterize all vaccine resistors, all mask resistors as lunatics. That's why you did that. Here's more setting up from Emily. She's pre-defending herself here. She's softening, softening you up. Quote, given the amount of uncertainty, almost every position was taken on every topic. And on every topic, someone was eventually proved right and someone else was proved wrong. In some instances, the right people were right for the wrong reasons. In other instances, they had a prescient understanding of the available information. There wasn't that uncertainty. That's not real. There was coordinated, conscious lying participated in by the White House, the CDC, NPR, the National Institutes of Health. 
The Atlantic, and almost all of Emily's field colleagues. All of them. Quote, we have to, <laughs> this is where she really gets to it. You are, I, I, I hope, I hope this is, I hope this is helpful if it's not immediately obvious to some people that this, this forensic sort of step-by-step -step how they manipulate you, I hope it's making it clear how what you once considered respectable news institutions are actually participating in Cluster B style brainwashing, cult style brainwashing. Quote, we have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. We can leave out the willful purveyors of actual misinformation while forgiving the hard calls that people had no choice but to make with imperfect knowledge. Los Angeles County closed its beaches in summer 2020. Ex post facto, this makes no more sense than my family's masked hiking trips. But we need to learn from our mistakes and then let them go. Now we get down to it. She wants an amnesty for Emily because everyone was acting in good faith and nobody had any clear information. The Emilies of the world meant just as well as everybody else on the other side who was objecting to it. They just disagreed because it wasn't clear. <laughs> no, no. The Emilies of the world didn't mean well. The Emilies of the world took an opportunity to exercise un unprecedented social and conversational control. And now she wants to get off scot-free because she's scared and she's sensing that the tide is turning. Well, she should be scared. The last fight I had with my mother over the phone six years ago, I lost it completely, completely lost my composure. And I told her about herself. And I told her, that I have been afraid of her my entire life, terrified of her, but I'm not afraid of her anymore. And I remember everything she did, and she knows what she did. And you know what she said to me? You're just holding on to old grudges. Notice the framing, grudges. That word carries the implication that your complaint is inherently unreasonable. A grudge is holding on to a bitterness against someone in an unjustified and disproportionate way. My mother, the narcissist, the borderline, the child abuser, the participant in the sexual abuse of one of her children, I was just holding on to grudges, old grudges. That's what Emily's doing. Not quite as vulgar as my mother, but that's what she's doing. No forgiveness, no amnesty. None. Justice and punishment is what I'm looking for. Legal punishment where applicable. Social stigmatization and ruination of your social standing where appropriate. Yes. Yes. Don't, don't come back to me and say that's cancel culture. I know it is. There are times when people's reputations should be smeared and should be exposed because they are abusers. Cancel culture isn't wrong because it's canceling somebody. It's that it's the abusers canceling their victims. So why, why no forgiveness? I really hate the conversation about forgiveness because it's sloppy and ambiguous and it, and it leaves a lot of room for people to maneuver for purposes other than what they disclose. There are four things that have to happen for me before forgiveness can be given. They are the following. One, a genuine apology offered without prompting and without including excuses. Two, an unprompted acknowledgement that one did wrong to another. Three, a genuine expression of remorse. This must include specifically naming the things that you did and the negative effects that your actions had on the person that you did them to. Number four, an unprompted commitment to examine yourself and work to understand what drove you to do what you did and how you're going to prevent it from happening again. All of those things are necessary before anyone is morally entitled to even have forgiveness contemplated.
Emily Oster, the CDCs, the National Institutes of Health, MSNBC, CNN, the New York Times, NPR, the Biden administration, state governors, not a single one of them has met one of these four criteria. No one has said I was wrong, and certainly no one has said I have a moral duty to admit I was wrong without other people pressuring me to do it. And I also have a duty to tell other people what I'm going to do to ensure that I don't mistreat them the same way again. To all of those people and institutions, and also to all of my erstwhile friends and colleagues who joined them, here is a list of some of the things that I do not forgive you for and I don't believe anyone should forgive you for. Closing down schools and sacrificing children's mental and intellectual health on the altar of old people's hypochondria, hysteria, and fear of death. Illegal and unconstitutional executive orders levying curfews on citizens and barring adults from visiting each other even outside if they come from a different household. Illegally forcing Americans to wear useless facial masks on their faces. <laughs> and, and to those of you who went along with this, my fellow citizens, my former friends, I don't forgive you for approving of this. I don't forgive you for staying silent about it either. I don't forgive you for failing to speak up and say, hey, this isn't legal and it's not morally right. I don't forgive you. I don't forgive illegally mandating vaccinations as a condition of working, a condition of entering museum, attending a state park, attending a concert, keeping your job, or working in the military. I don't forgive you for forcing an unproven, and now, as we know, dangerous vaccine on people through lies, fear, and legal coercion. You who did this, you killed people. You did. No amnesty. I don't forgive you for closing churches. I don't forgive you for pouring sand on children's skate parks so they'd have nowhere to play outside. I don't forgive you for spiking the hysteria so hard that old men yelled at me on the street for not wearing a mask. And a doctor raised her voice at me and told me that I was, quote, unbelievable for refusing to obey quarantine and reporting orders from the state governor of Vermont. I don't forgive any of you for crashing the economy. I don't forgive you for putting hundreds of thousands of small businesses in their grave. I don't forgive you for promoting BLM and queer riots and protests by claiming that racism and transphobia were suddenly a much worse imminent danger than the otherwise uber-deadly COVID that made us all have to stay inside our homes. I don't forgive you for the sky-high suicide rates. I don't forgive you for plunging the nation into the worst inflation since the Great Depression. And to the people formerly in my life, in some capacity, as some kind of friend, parasocial friend, some kind of colleague, I don't forgive you for ghosting me, as dozens of you have done. You know why you stopped calling. You know why you stopped offering to collaborate on projects. You know why you stopped corresponding with me. I know it, and you know it. There's a line I keep coming back to from the 1945 film noir, Mildred Pierce. Mildred Pierce is a divorcee who spoiled her prissy daughter, Vida, with fine clothes and music lessons far beyond the family's budget while neglecting, emotionally neglecting, her tomboy daughter, Kay. When Mildred builds a restaurant chain and becomes rich, Vida lives it up on her mother's dime. And that little narcissist tried to extort the parents of her boyfriend, her fiancé, by falsely claiming to be pregnant in order to get money. And in this scene, she admits it to her mother. And this is the first time that her mother really wakes up. And she says, I think I'm really seeing you for the first time in my life. And you're cheap and horrible. All of you who fit this I don't like you, I don't trust you, and I don't respect you. I don't forgive you. No amnesty, and certainly no forgiveness without contrition. See you next week. days of Disaffected on Twitter are over, but you can still follow and interact with us on several alternative social media platforms. Find us on Getter at DisaffectedPod. Follow us on Truth Social 
Disaffected. You can also find us on Parlor at Disaffected Pod. There's a new perk for Disaffected subscribers, and it's a good one. Patreon and Subscribestar donors, as well as PayPal donors, now have instant access to our backstage Discord server. Join multiple topic-based chat rooms and 24-7 open voice chat, and even virtual events on a main stage for hosted conversations and backstage podcast recording sessions. It's not Twitter, and you don't have to pretend Bruce Jenner's vagina is real. Sign up today. Well, we all know it won't last long, but let's have a little fun while we still can. Follow our TikTok account and get neck deep in the insanity with us. You can find us on TikTok as Disaffected P. For more conversation on the dark and disordered psychology that shapes today's cultural and political left, subscribe to our weekly audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and virtually anywhere else you get your podcasts. Let's learn to recognize these dynamics and call them what they are. Subscribe to Disaffected to learn how to break the spell.